Friends, welcome to another episode of Making Disciples. My name is Chris Rogers and I am your host today uh, for this podcast. If you're new to the podcast, massive welcome. Uh, if you enjoy it, we'd love to say please subscribe to this podcast and do share it with other people. Um, we want to see more and more people uh, being discipled in the way of Jesus and discipled in the Christian faith and understanding the Christian faith. And so often we overcomplicate things and we make things really uh, hard to understand. And in this podcast, we want to use simple words to actually talk about some really profound uh, and deep things. Uh, so please do share, do like, uh, do uh, let others know that this is happening. Now, today's podcast, I want to continue uh, in this vein of looking at the Bible and understanding really what is going on within it. Uh, in previous weeks, we've looked at little clues that we might find uh, in the text. We've talked about different passages that we might understand in a slightly different way if we understood the culture or the context uh, behind it. If you are not listening to those podcasts, do hop on and go and listen to the Christmas uh, episode and uh, a few of the others from last year where we look at a passage from a slightly different perspective, some of the parables. Uh, and in today's podcast, what I want to do is just give you a, a route into understanding the kind of questions the original uh, readers would have asked of the Bible. Uh, because the way that we approach the Bible today can be very different to the way it was approached 2000 years ago. And depending on where you live today can change the way you approach the Bible. So just for a, a, an example, if you live in the US or if you live in the UK or if you live in a country like Denmark, you may well approach the Bible in a very different way than if you live in Lebanon, Syria, Iran, uh, Israel, Palestine, you may approach it very differently because your worldview, the way that you see the world, just works a little bit differently. Uh, so, for example, if you live in a world where you see the world as a set of communities and families, or you have a very high value of family, then the way you approach the Bible may be a little bit different than if you live in a culture uh, that values the individual. You approach the Bible differently as an individual. At one, you read it for yourself. The other, you read it in community or with community or for community. Therefore, how you approach it and read it changes, therefore, what you get out of it. You understand some of the passages differently because you apply it to yourself in a way uh, that's just for you. And we do live in the Western world with uh, a me-centred world. And therefore, the way we approach the Bible is very different at times to the way that a Middle Eastern reader may approach uh, this book. So in today's podcast, we're going to look at the way a modern Western reader approaches the Bible. And we're going to look at how a Jewish Middle Eastern reader approaches the Bible and just look at how it's different and what we might learn uh, from these different approaches. Now, it's not saying one is better than the other. It's just saying it's different. And sometimes to get more out of something, we have to understand a different view. So that is what we're going to do today. So friends, welcome to Making Disciples. I'm so excited you're here and I hope you enjoy this podcast on a Western reader and an Eastern. 
So here we go. Let's have a look at the Bible from these two different world views. Now, let me just explain a worldview for a moment. You and I believe the world works in a particular way. Because you believe it works in a particular way, you have different conclusions on, on how you interact with the world. If you grew up, I'm giving you an example now. A number of years ago, I was in Maseno, Kenya, and there was just this underlying understanding that the world was supernatural and that there were dark forces out there that were at work. And because that was a part of the world view, uh, the way you saw the world, uh, there was a behavior superstition in, in, a, in a way in that community. There was, a, uh, there was an understanding of faith in, in a very supernatural way. And if you were to look at uh, us in the West, in the UK, uh, we have less of a superstitious, or as obviously superstitious culture. So we're still superstitious, but, but in a less obvious way. So because we're less superstitious and there's, there's less of a framework of the supernatural, uh, we end up with a much more scientific worldview. Uh, so the way that many people approach the world is very different to uh, that village in Miseno, Kenya. Therefore, that, that way you see the world is called a worldview. It's how you view the world. We've all got it. And if you grew up on a housing estate in Hull, and if you grew up in a very nice area of Kensington, those two people would have very different worldviews. They would see the world in very different ways. That's their worldview. So let's have a look at this. I want to look at a Western reader or a Western worldview and a Western way of approaching the Bible and then an Eastern way because they are quite different. So you and I, if you're listening to this as a Western reader, we approach the Bible with much more of a scientific historical method. So what we do is we approach the Bible and we ask questions of it. The questions that we would ask are things like, did it really happen like this? We might say, uh, is it historical? And if I talk to you about uh, Noah for a moment, uh, Noah and his ark, you and I, as Western readers, approach that passage and we say, did it really happen? Is there historical proof to prove to us that Noah's Ark actually happened? And what, what we end up creating is this, if we can't prove it historically, then it can't be factually correct or it can't be true. So did it really happen like this? Is it historical? So what we want to find out is, was there a man called Noah? Can we find somewhere in some history book proof that there was a man called Noah? We want to find a boat big enough somewhere to have been Noah's Ark. We want to do archaeology and find a dumped boat somewhere to prove that that story is historically correct. Because we value historical accuracy. Because we value historical accuracy, we want to prove that the Bible is historically accurate. Therefore, it is trustworthy. And we have a real cynical uh, world, uh, a cynical way of approaching uh, the Bible when we use the word myth. So if I was to say, actually, some of the Bible is myth, what many of us in the Western world would hear is it's not true. It's a story. 
It's a fable. It's a parable that has been made up uh, to have a meaning in it of some description, but it's just not historically true. Because we would say it's not historically true, we would therefore say it is not true. So we really struggle with this idea of a myth. Now, when the Bible talks about being a myth, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not historically true. There are parts of the Bible that is what you would call biblical myth. What that is, is it's a metaphor and a story that has a higher moral or has a higher value or a teaching method or something within it that it wants to communicate with you. Now, a myth does not mean it did not happen. It just means the writing style of it or the way it has been presented to you. It's done it in such a way that it could be historically true, but it's been crafted in a way that it's told like a story. Uh, so it doesn't mean it's not true. So let me just give you an example for a second. Jonah. No, 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 no. let's go for Job. Job is a great example. So the book of Job is the story of a man who loses his wife, his house, his children, his land, his animals. He ends up covered in boils. He's then got a group of friends that come around him that basically debate the meaning of life. And right at the very end, God appears and gives Job what for. If you approach that story as historical, you want to find, did Job exist? Where is his house? Can we go and visit it? Uh, what do we have written down that still exists from that time? We want to get to some nuts and bolts history stuff. But actually the story of Job uh, is what you would call a, a myth in that it, it was crafted as a story to explain a bigger message. That does not mean there was not a man called Job. It does not mean that those events did not happen. It's just the way it's been written down um, is really important. So let me give you just an example of this. What was unlocked for me a number of years ago around Job was when I found out that Job was actually written as a street performance. It was it was a drama that was performed in the street. And I don't know if you remember, there used to be a TV show with a guy called Victor Meldrew. It was a one foot in the grave. And Victor Meldrew was this miserable old man. And I like to imagine Victor Meldrew, this miserable old man, being Job. And the idea would be in the street, Job would step up and he would give his monologue on what had just happened to him. He would then sit down and his friends would come along and they'd give their monologues about what had happened to him. Then at the end of the street drama, God would stand up and say, hang on, who let the donkeys out? Who, let, who, who actually controls the storehouses of snow in the world? And, and God then gives this, I'm, I'm God and I'm really powerful. The story of Job actually is a street drama that's to communicate some incredible message. That does not mean, because it's this myth story, it does not mean it didn't happen. There could well have been a guy called Job, and he could well have existed in exactly the way that story is laid out. But the story is laid out as a street performance. So what we want to do is we want to say, is it historically correct? Did it happen like this? And was there a man called Job? Uh, and I'm not sure they're always the best questions to ask of books that are called historical myths. <coughs> so what I would love to uh, kind of leave you with thinking about, maybe go and research the word myth. What does it mean in modern society? What does it mean from a, from a Bible perspective? Uh, but did it really happen like this? That's the question. Um, did this person exist and have this name and can we prove it? Uh, the second thing that we ask is something like this. How does it solve my problems? Uh, because we live in the West with a me-centred world, 
and we very much have uh, a uh, view that the world kind of orientates uh, around us. We approach the Bible with this question, how does it solve my problem? How does it tell me about how to make my life better? Does it work for me? So in the Western world, we pick up the Bible, and we read it and say, did it solve my problem? If that did not solve my problem, then I'm not interested in it. It's like we're looking for a self-help book. We want to approach the Bible as if it's some yellow pages self-help book that would help us solve a problem. So we approach it in terms of does this solve my problems? Uh, I'm the centre of my world uh, and does it help me navigate my world? So that's the second kind of question that we would ask. Does it solve my problems? The third thing we would ask of it is we'd say something like, uh, are these people in this story uh, real? And is there proof that they were real? And because of that, we end up approaching uh, the Bible and then the world around. In, in terms of like a, a, an archaeologist, we, we end up wanting to know, um, can I find a grave for this individual in this story? So when it comes to Jesus, for example, uh, from the Western world, what we want to know first and foremost is, is there historical proof that Jesus existed? And is there proof of the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus? So we become very interested in what the other people in that culture and that time tell me uh, about Jesus. Is there any other proof around there uh, that tells me that Jesus existed? So what we are after is, uh, is this real history and is there proof that this historical event actually happened the way that it did? So we become quite confused. Like you read in the Gospels, in one part of the Gospels, it says that there was 4,000 fed on one occasion. Another point of the Gospels in uh, Matthew, we are told that Jesus feeds 5,000 people. So is it 4,000 or 5,000? So we end up approaching going, well, oh, it's obviously contradicting itself. Uh, therefore, uh, it can't be true. Like it's not consistent. And because we are so desperate to try and add things up perfectly from a historical point of view, when we see a contradiction, we think that actually proves it's not real. It's like there's something wrong here. Oh God, somebody's made a mistake. So one of the ways we try and rectify that is we try and say, oh no, it's two events. Like there was a feeding of the 4,000 and there was a feeding of the 5,000. I'm not saying there wasn't a feeding of the four and a feeding of the five. But could it actually be that the writers were wanting to communicate something different with those stories? And actually those numbers were actually important to whoever they were writing to. But we can look at that in another uh, occasion. The fourth thing we often approach as a Westerner is this. Does it fit the world we know? Does this make sense in the world that I understand? Or is it in contrast to the world that I know? So we want to know, does it add up? Does it add up with what I know about the world? Uh, I cannot walk on water. This book says... A man walks on water, therefore, does that fit the world that I know? And therefore, we disregard it because it doesn't fit the world that we know. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine just recently who was talking to me about the feeding of the 5,000. And they were telling me that when they grew up, they were told, oh, don't worry that uh, this supernatural thing happens. happened. It was pro most probably 
that in that story, uh, as the disciples brought their packed lunches, everybody else realised that they could bring their packed lunches. And the miracle is that everybody emptied out their bags and got food all along. Uh, so we remove like the super, uh, supernatural element. We want to make it tangible and scientific. So we ask the, of the Bible, does it fit my worldview? Does it fit how I see the world? And if it doesn't, we either write it off or we try and crowbar it to fit my worldview, which connects with like the fifth thing I just want to say is, uh, the fifth thing that a, a modern Western reader would do is, we approach the Bible in terms of, do I like it? Do I like it? Does this fit what I want to hear? Do I like what it has to say? And there's a danger sometimes that if we don't like what it says, uh, then we either disregard it, and say, oh, it's historical, we don't need that anymore, we're progressive. Or we end up saying that the Bible is out of date, the whole thing can be disregarded, when actually it may well just be that that is God's view, and God's view is what he wants us to know. And, and actually, do I like it? If it's true, it's true, if you like it or not. Uh, so one of the Western Westerners do. We practically do. I like it. If I do, great. If I don't, mm, cut that bit out. Oh, pretend that doesn't exist. Oh, we're more progressive. That's pulling us backwards. Let's ignore it. Do I like it? Is a big question that a modern reader would ask. So that is the modern Western reader's view. Uh, did it happen like this? Is it historical? How does it solve my problems? Are these people real? Is there any proof? Does it fit the world that I know? And do I like it? And then you've got the Middle Eastern reader, the, the, the Jewish Middle Eastern reader. You could kind of widen it more and say, this is not just Jewish, actually. The whole Middle Eastern worldview is very different to the Western worldview. So let me just approach uh, this next little section with seven things that an Eastern reader may approach the Bible with, the kind of questions that they may ask. And you'll see they're very different. So number one, uh, a Middle Eastern reader would approach the Bible and say this. Why did the writer tell me this story? So you're reading a, a story in the Bible. We want to know, is it historically correct? Whereas they would approach it and say, hang on, hang on. So there was lots of things going on. God has done lots of things across time. Why this story? Why is the writer telling me this story? What is important about this story that makes it uh, so important to make sure it's written down and passed on to me? Why is this story so significant to the writer? Is there something here that the writer is trying to communicate to me that this story is the only story that could be used to communicate it? So you could apply that to the Gospels and Jesus' storytelling. You could apply it to the Old Testament. Why is it that the writers of the Old Testament felt it was so important to tell you the story of Moses and uh, the people of God in Egypt? Why is it so important? What does it communicate to me that no other story would? Why is it the writer tells me that uh, there was this moment in time when the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. Why is that important? Why is it important that we are told the story of Esther? Why, why is it the writer felt the story of Esther had to be written down? What is it about the story of Ruth 
that the writer felt really had to be written down. So why does the writer tell me this story? What's the standout thing about this story? So that's the first thing that they would say. The second thing is they would say is this. Why did the writer choose to write it like this? You could choose to approach writing an event down in many different ways. You could do it in scientific language. You could do it in creative language. You could do it in poetic, poetic, poetic language. Poetic, it's not even a word. Poetic language. You could write it in like a prophetic language. Uh, There's so many different ways of approaching writing down an incident. So why did the writer choose to write it like this? Why is it that David chooses to tell us what is happening to him through songwriting in the book of Psalms? What is so important about the way he crafted it? David writes Psalms as acts of worship because he wants to show that he's wrestling with God and adoring God and that worship is not just about Um, saying good things about God. It's also about wrestling with God through what we're going through. So uh, David chooses to write down as songs. Why is it that the gospel writers choose to approach writing the gospels as these accounts of of what happened? Um, So there are different writing styles. Why is it that John chooses to write the book of Revelation in that poetic language with that poetic voice? What is it uh, that the writer is choosing to tell me because of the way that they have told this story? And that is a really significant thing to understand, because uh, going back to that whole thing about is this historically correct? Sometimes, say there's a historical event and I choose to write a song about it. It's not that that historical event didn't happen. It's just the, the, the voice and language that I'm using to communicate it is through a particular form. It's through songwriting. Does it mean it's not historically correct? Does it mean it didn't happen like that? It just means that I'm choosing a language and a tone to communicate it to you that's emotive. So why are they choosing to write this book like this? Why is it crafted like that? And that's a significant question for us to understand quite what's going on. You look at the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is very clearly written as a poem. That first section is a poem about God's creativity. And the writer is not telling us how the world was created, but why the world was created. If the writer wanted to communicate with us how the world was created, they would have chosen a scientific language to unpick for us how it was made using a more scientific language but they don't the writer uses a poetic language to help us see this rhythm of God's creativity through day one day two day three day four day five day six then day seven what is amazing is if you look at Genesis and lay upon a a scientific understanding of the world being created actually there's quite a lot of ties they match up so beautifully and I want us to explore that in a future podcast that I want to get a scientist to come and talk to us about the links between the way the world was created in stages and phases and how Genesis is written, actually how they partner together beautifully. But for us, the book of Genesis was not written to tell us how, but why. And their writing style as poetry and as story and as allegory is really important to understand that as we understand, well, actually, the writer has chosen to give us this 
this narrative of creation through poetry. Why? Because God is a poet. God is a creative. God is at work here creatively. Number three, why did the writer use this word, not that? So one of the questions that the Jewish reader and a Middle Eastern reader would do is they would approach a story and go, oh, it's interesting that in this story, the writer has chosen to use that word for love, but not this word for love. Why is that? Why is it they've chosen to use this word that means that particular understanding rather than this word that means this understanding? So in other words, words are really important in the, in the original language because depending on which word you choose could change the way that somebody reads or understands something because some words had particular meanings. So let me give you an example. Uh, when Jesus goes to uh, Peter and says, Peter, I want you to start my church. The original word there in the Greek is the word ekklesia. And an ekklesia was stolen directly from the Roman Empire. It was a township or village that had pledged their allegiance to the Roman Empire. Jesus says, Peter, we're going to start uh, our own ecclesia, a township or village that pledges their allegiance to God's kingdom, not the earthly kingdom. So as a reader, they would read that and go, oh, that's interesting. Why is the writer using a politically loaded word at that point? So they would approach each of these words and go, why that word, not this word? And I think that's a really fun thing to, to ask sometimes. Why is it that they've used this particular word at this particular place? What are they trying to unlock or say that I might miss? The next thing uh, that an Eastern reader would do is they would ask this question. I think it's a great one. How can I enter the story? How can I enter the story? So the, the Eastern reader was, let's just go back to Genesis for a moment because it's a great example. Um, how can I enter the story? Uh, where in this story do I fit? I'm reading the story of Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, God walking in the cool of the day. I'm reading the story of the, the snake tempting Adam and Eve. Where in this do I fit? Where, where's me in this story? Am I the God character? Well, well, no, in that story, I don't feel like I do fit there. Am I, am I meant to be Adam and Eve? Am I, do I feel like I could actually be the tempter? You know, which character here uh, do I most sit with? Which character do I connect with? Uh, so by asking this story, how can I enter the story? Uh, it starts to allow us to see how we fit into it. So let's look at a parable for a moment. Let's say the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, a priest walks by, a Levite walks by, and then a Samaritan walks by. Uh, who am I in this story? Am I the man beaten up in the road? Am I one of those that walk by and don't engage with the poor guy? Actually, am I the thief who's run off already? Or am I the Samaritan who's ready and waiting to serve? Like, which one of these characters am I? How do I enter the story? Where would I fit? Would I actually be a fourth character that does something completely different? So how can I enter the story? And then this links to question five. So question five is this. What does the story ask of me? So a Middle Eastern reader would approach the Bible and say, what does this story ask of me? What am I meant to do differently because I've now read this story? How does it challenge me, change me, affect me so that I can now uh, leave doing something different? So what does this story ask of me? So once I've entered it, like, what, what am I meant to do here now? Is there, is there something I'm meant to do or say or act or behave that I've failed to do before or not been doing before? Is there something I shouldn't be doing? Does it change the way that I act? So what does the story ask of me? 
Question six would be this. Where have I heard this story before? Now, this, friends, is one of those drop the mic things. So uh, when we are reading the Gospels, we should be asking this question. Where have I heard this story before? Is this a version of another story in the Old Testament? Let me give you a little example. Jesus is approached one day. His disciples come to him. Jesus, the disciples are panicking. They're panicking because there's somebody in the town or the village and they're teaching about the kingdom of God. And we're told that they're healing the sick and casting out demons. The disciples, how dare they, Jesus? How dare they? Uh, you know, he says, this is your ministry, Jesus, not, not theirs. And it's an actual echo of a story with Moses where uh, the people of God go to Moses and say, Moses, there's people in the town and the village teaching about God. Moses is like, look, if, if they're preaching and they're teaching the same God, like, why am I going to ever stop them? And so there's this great story in the Old Testament that then is echoed in the New Testament with the disciples. And friends, we're going to look at this a little bit further in another podcast because it's really interesting. Uh, I like to call them like future echoes where you see something in the Old Testament that then is echoed in the New Testament. And, um, you know, you could almost say that, that Jesus is the new Moses. And uh, so one of the questions that these Eastern readers would say is, where have I heard this story before? Is there a version of this story in the Old Testament that I've that I've missed that suddenly now unlocks it for me in a way that maybe I'd not before? Is this story echoing another story? So where have I heard this story before? Uh, does that teach me something? And then finally, the seventh question an Eastern reader would do is they would ask this one. What does this tell me about this world that I didn't know? What does this tell me about this world that I didn't know? So essentially, what does this teach me? How does this help me see things differently, understand things differently? Uh, this is much more about what does this book do and change in me. Can you see that there's a difference here between the Western reader and the Eastern reader? The Western reader is facts, it's numbers, it's it's physical, it's building blocks, it's truth. The Eastern reader is much more interested in what does this do with me? How does this change me? How does this transform me? What does this awaken in me that, that was once dead that is now coming alive? Like, where have I heard this before? And therefore, where will I hear this story again? Uh, the story of Genesis is not a story of, um, you know, we would say, did it happen? The Jewish reader would say uh, the story happened, but it's also a story that happens. The story of Genesis is a story that happened, but it's a story that happens. Uh, a Western reader wants to know about the history of it. The Eastern reader wants to know about where is it still happening? And this is this, this therefore totally can transform the way that you approach the Bible, because rather than seeing it as something, uh, to approach uh, with almost glasses on and um, scientific tools to kind of approach it and pull it apart. Uh, the Eastern reader would say, let's approach it as a piece of art and creativity, something that is brewing and humming with godness. And therefore, how does this transform me? Why did the writer tell me it like that so that I can maybe live it out the way that they're seeing it? So these are two different ways of reading the Bible. It's kind of important to say both are important. Both are really important. 
I'm certainly not saying that the Western approach to the Bible is wrong at all. I love archaeology. I love history. I love seeing it. I love reading the Bible in the location that it was written. Super important. One of the most profound moments in my life was reading the Gospels on Lake Galilee. One night, listening to the water of the lake brushing on the beach and reading the passage. There was nothing more profound for me than walking around Lake Galilee and realising Lake Galilee was not a sandy beach. It was a stony beach. And that when the scriptures tell us that they, the people ran around Lake Galilee to, re, to be with Jesus, they couldn't have ran that easily because it's all stone and bricks. They just stubbed their toes. I love the history of it. I, I love uh, approaching it to try and work out Joseph from, uh, from the Old Testament that we're told had a coat of many colours. Is there historical proof that proves that Imhotep, who was a physician uh, during the era of the pharaohs, was he Joseph? There seems to be enough proof out there he could have been the Joseph of the Old Testament. I love that stuff, but I also love this Eastern way of approaching the Bible. What does it do with me? How does it change me? Why this story? Why that word? What's the creativity behind it that's going to transform the way that I approach it? So friends, I want to just give you those two worldviews. Uh, what I want to say to you is do both. Enjoy both. Uh, if you are somebody that, that has a more scientific method, do so. But also don't miss out on the creativity and the other stuff that's going on right under the pages, you know, within the words, between the lines. You know, Do both. And I guess if you want to learn more about this Middle Eastern stuff, then what I would say is Google a guy called Ray Vanderland. I'll put a link to his name and his website uh, in the show notes. But Ray Vanderland, this guy is my secret weapon. I listen to and read everything that Ray Vanderland produces because he approaches the Bible from this Middle Eastern way. And he is just a phenomenal Bible teacher, Ray Vanderland. And he produces books and DVDs. Uh, there's some YouTube um episodes of his out there that you might thoroughly enjoy as you explore something of this Middle Eastern worldview. So friends, I'm going to leave it there because there's so much more we could say and I just want to give you enough to kind of think about. But friends, do ponder on this idea of how do you approach the Bible and is there another way of approaching the Bible that is different to yours that may unlock different ways of reading it. So friends, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope it gives you something to think about. And if you've got any questions, do kind of put them in the in the comments. Uh, do email us. Go to wearemakingdisciples.com. You can email us through the website. And we would love to kind of explore further with you some of these questions that we are looking at. But friends, until next week's podcast, I'd love to say grace and peace.